I'm afraid to come out with my views. You see, my views on marriage and sexuality are different from other people's. I'm afraid that if I come out with my views that people will be ashamed. People will humiliate me, that people will reject me, that I'll be ostracized and and marginalized and that people will call me names. I'm afraid that that if they that, that if I come out with, with my views that I won't be accepted and that I might even be threatened. See, I, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And I believe that any sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of marriage is sinful. You know, up until about a decade ago, the idea of traditional marriage was accepted very widely in culture. Even by all of the presidential candidates at the time, they were all saying that they believed that marriage was also between one man and one woman. Things have changed a lot in that time, uh, very, very drastically, very radically. And so what I want to do today is something a little unusual for us. We typically go through books of the Bible or select a, a passage of Scripture to, for, for one sustained uh, study. Uh, today we're going to be looking at what the Scriptures say about uh, marriage, uh, as particularly responding to unnatural marriage and sexuality. And to see what the Scriptures say. And I know that a lot of, a lot of Christians are wondering, like, how do we, how do we respond how, how, do we, how do we give an answer for what we believe? And what I hope will happen today is about, that by the time we're done, your own understanding of what the Scriptures teach about what we believe and how we should behave will be clarified, you'll be strengthened, and you'll be able to give an answer to those who have questions about what Christians believe and even be able to share the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves all those who come to him. Today we're going to start in 2 Peter. And the first thing that I want you to, that, that I think that we should do is respond with distress. Respond with distress. Go to 2 Peter 2. Second Peter 2, starting with verse 4. Respond with distress. 2 Peter 2. Starting with verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 10. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment into the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You know, Peter here is speaking and giving a warning against false teaching, false teachers who come into the church and, and uh, in some way upset the church. They are troubling the church. They are causing problems within the church because of their false teaching. But, but here what, what Peter says is, I, I don't want you to be troubled. 
I don't want you to be upset. I don't want you to, I don't want you to worry because God, God knows how to deal with the ungodly and the unrighteous. And his two examples are Noah and the flood and righteous Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Noah and the flood, God, God took Noah and, and his family and placed them in an ark. And even while the floods of judgment came upon the earth, God was able to save Noah and his family through judgment. That is, in this one great big event, judgment came at one point, but those who were trusting in God were also being saved. Same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Lot was there and Lot was saved because of his, his faith and because he had the faith of Abraham and, and God brought Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in this one great event, even though God was bringing Sodom and Gomorrah to the, the words that, that Peter uses there to extinction, God was able to save Lot out. And so that should be, that should be a word of encouragement for us. That should be something that, that comforts us that no matter what the opposition to godliness and righteousness not, might be, God knows how to bring about justice. God knows how to bring about judgment. And that is a, that is a good thing to know, to know that when God comes, that when Jesus returns, he will do away with all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And all those who oppose God's people God knows how to enact justice. But there's also, if you look in verse 8, look at how we are to, to respond in the meantime. Look at how Lot was thinking about the people that he was living among. It says in verse 8, says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was a righteous man, and when he saw the ungodliness, when he saw the lawlessness around him, he was tormenting his own soul. He was distressed in his soul, in his spirit, over the ungodliness and the wickedness that he saw around him. You know, a righteous man can't live among ungodliness. He can't live among wickedness. He can't live among outright evil and not be concerned about it. You know, there's a, there, there is a, a sense in which the, the, the events of the past uh, month or so, and, and even the past decade leading up to it, that those are are things that I, I don't want us to panic too much about, that they shouldn't be things that we should be too anxious about. At the same time, we cannot look at the world around us and not be distressed about what is happening, that God's commands, even God's very creation order that he set at the beginning is being overturned and and despised. And so we should be distressed about that. We should be troubled about that. We shouldn't be kind of apathetic. We shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be unmoved when we see the suffering that is happening around the world. When we see the suffering that is happening in our culture, and when we anticipate the suffering that is going to happen in our society because of the breakdown of belief in marriage, marriage as God defined it, there's going to be pain that comes. There's going to be pain for those who, who don't believe God's word. And there's going to be potentially difficulty and trial and tribulation for those who do believe God's word. We ought to be troubled by what we see around us. And we also ought to hope that and know, be confident that God is able to carry out all things in righteousness. That, that this is not the end of anything. This is, not the, this is not the end. The end is when 
the judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, sets his foot on, on the, the earth. And when all things are, are done away with, all that is evil, when all is, that is wrong is done away with, and then the people of God will dwell in peace and in righteousness in his presence forever. That's our hope. But in the meantime, when we look around us, we should respond in distress. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And God is going to make it the way that it's supposed to be. So we see first that we should respond with distress. Also, we should respond with wisdom. Turn over to Colossians 4. Colossians 4. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, respond with wisdom. Respond with wisdom. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. This is what it says. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is Paul coming down to the end of his letter to the, to the church in Colossae, and he's saying this is, this is part of his final instructions. And he says, walk in wisdom. Be, be mindful of the circumstances. Be mindful of the environment that you are in, and walk, conduct yourselves, live in a wise way among outsiders, among those who are unbelievers, among those who are not Christians. And he says, let your speech always be gracious. Our speech, the way that we talk, should always be merciful, gracious, compassionate. It should always be an exhibition and an expression of the grace of God. There should always be a, a kindness and a patience and a gentleness and a, a respectfulness when we speak to other people. At the same time, he says, season with salt. The idea there is if, if you're eating a, a dish and it is uh, tasteless, there's no salt on it. Ta salt is this rock that you add to food that almost always makes it taste better, okay? And what he's saying there is there needs to be this essential ingredient in your speech that makes it, that, that makes it have taste, that gives it content, that gives it meaning. The fact that we should speak in gracious and compassionate and merciful ways does not mean that, that there should be no content, that there should be no boldness, that sh there should be no truth in what we say. We should be delivering truth in a gracious way. We ought to know how to answer each person. That's one of the reasons that uh, somebody asked me in our church, said, could you show me how to talk to somebody about this? I've got people that I work with. I've got people that I uh, am, am, have family members. I have friends. I have neighbors. I have people that I go to school with. There are people who are celebrating uh, what is happening in our culture and our society. How do, how do I talk to them? Well, that's what this message is designed to do is to, to enable you to know how to talk to other people. And it begins here, gracious, with content, with seasoning, so that we might be able to, hopefully, Lord willing, in whatever way he chooses, to preserve the deterioration and the corruption of society to the level that it would be if, if sin went unrestrained. And so we want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We want to know how to answer. We want to know how to answer. And hopefully answer in a gracious and truthful way. 
And so uh, moving into the next, next couple of sections here, we talk about how to answer. And first, we should answer, we, re- we should respond with a definition. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. If you just write two passages of Scripture down today, I want you to write this one down and the next one down, okay? Write down Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. And let's look and see what, see what Jesus says. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Respond with a definition. It says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees about divorce. And Jesus responds with a definition of what marriage is. This is what marriage is. This is what God created marriage to be. This is what God designed marriage to be. In the beginning, God created them male and female. That is, he created them with bodies, with specific sexes, and with their genders connected to that sex. And if you don't understand what I mean by that, then... You don't, what I'm basically saying is you don't want to get your ideas of sexuality and gender from the cover of Vanity Fair or from ESPN for that matter. God created people male and female and then he created them for a man and a woman to come together for life. That's, that's Jesus' definition and Jesus carries us back to the beginning. Jesus carries us back to Genesis 1 and 2. He carries us back to God's design and God's creation. God created marriage to be this way. And so since this is the definition, every deviation, small and large, is a deviation from God's definition. Now I want you, we have to be aware of something that that is going to happen, that will happen increasingly, probably, and that is, is that there are going to many be many so-called Christians and many so-called churches, uh, even as it's already happening, who are going to begin to move away from this definition. How can you be a Christian and move away from this definition? This is Jesus' definition. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is to follow Jesus' definition of what marriage is. Now, we recognize that this is something that's been happening in, in culture for a long time. Christians have not always even been the best examples when it comes to marriage. We recognize that. In fact, we ought to repent of that. But that does not mean deviating from God's definition. We, when we see that we do not meet God's standard, we don't, we don't change the standard. We instead hold to God's standard. And, and hold to it and exemplify it. And I think there is, there is hope in this. I think there is something, a, a way that the, the, the church and, and Christians can help our society. And that is when people who don't know what marriage and family are supposed to look like, even as 
marriage and family have been breaking down. You, you, know, you think about what's happening here. Up until, up until modern times, up until our society in the past even 20 years around the world, marriage was men and women, man and woman, or man and women. We, we see that something like homosexuality was practiced in the ancient world. We see that it was accepted and celebrated in the Greek culture and, and the ancient uh, culture that Jesus and Paul lived in. But even then, people recognized that marriage was natural and conjugal. That is, it was between a man and a woman, and it was able to produce children. Now, we've seen in our culture that there has been not just a, this is not something that happened recently. This has been something that happened over the past 50 years that our culture pulled back from that in a multitude of ways. And as you move away from the family, the family is the basis of society. As marriage goes and as family goes, so goes society. And society begins to crumble. And society is crumbling. It has been crumbling. The number of fatherless children is higher than, than I, think, I think that our grandparents could imagine. The people who don't know their parents, those who are, for, in every, for, for all intents, they are, are orphans. They don't know what it's supposed to look like. So where will people, when they begin to have a desire to know how marriage and family is supposed to be, where will they look? I hope that they can look at the church. It's not to say that our marriages and our families will be perfect. Obviously, they won't. There will still be, as we still continue to struggle with sin, there are going to be difficulties in our marriages and our families. But hopefully, they can come into the church and they can hear the truth of God's word about what marriage and family are supposed to be. And they can even see examples in the church for themselves to, to model themselves after. That should give us hope. Perhaps God, in our time, or maybe in, our, in, our, in the time of our children, as we seek to preserve a, a, a holy heritage for them, people will have a hunger to know what marriage and family is supposed to be like, what it's designed for. And the church will still be there to tell them, to share God's word with them. And that's what I want you to be able to do with people in your life is share with them a definition of what Jesus says marriage is. We ought to be able to do that. We ought to be equipped to answer in that way. Next, we should respond with a warning. Respond with a warning. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. First Corinthians six verses nine through eleven. That's what it says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Paul there is giving a warning to the Corinthian church about their own behavior. And he gives them this warning about those who live in such a way are not going to inherit the are, are going to are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to enter into God's eternal kingdom. They're not going to enter into a, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. They're not going to enter into a kingdom where there is no more pain and there's no more suffering. They're not going to enter that. And then he gives them description. And we have to be reflective on ourselves when we read the description here. We have to think about our own our own home lives. We need to think about our own work lives. We need to think about our own acts of self-control. And so we should be striving to live righteous and holy lives in this present age. But look at what, look at what Paul says. He says, at the head of the list is the sexually immoral. That is the big catch-all term for every kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Outside of marriage as Jesus defined it. And then Paul is more specific later on when he says men who practice homosexuality. That is, those who practice an unnatural and perverted form of physical intimacy with one another. He says that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the warning. We ought to bring people face to face with the fact that God does not approve. There is a creator and he does not approve In fact, he condemns, he abhors what you celebrate. And we need to be able to show that from the scriptures. But then there also should be this turn there. Number one, verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. The church is not made up of those who are morally superior to the rest of the culture. We're not morally superior to society. We are just as sinful. Some of us were worse than we can imagine now. Like we can't believe what we were, but that's what we were. We were drunkards. We were sexually immoral. We were swindlers. We were, we were evil in our business dealings. We were evil in our home lives. We were adulterers. We were, we were homosexuals. That's what we were. But then you were washed That is, you are cleansed from the inside out by the Spirit of God, giving you a new heart, causing you to be born again from above, a complete and total act of God's grace in your life that he changed you from the inside out. He says that you were sanctified. That is, God took you out of the realm of darkness, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, he set you apart as a pure and holy people. Even while you were still impure, even while you were defiled, even while you were ungodly, he took you and he set you apart as his own to belong to himself. Even you were justified. That is, God counts you as righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ and he declares you to be righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ and he forgives you of all of your sins. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accomplished this for us. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ came and lived a a perfectly clean, a perfectly holy, a perfectly righteous life in our place. And he became sin. He took on all of our sexual immorality, all of our swindling, all of our homosexuality, all of our drunkenness and adultery. He took it on himself and he suffered the punishment for our sin in our place. And then he gave us his perfect record of righteousness so that we, be, we would be accepted by God. 
when you give an answer to people about what we believe, this is, this is what I'm hope, hoping you will be able to do. Just these two passages of Scripture. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And say, look, this is Jesus' definition of marriage. And look, this is what God's word says about who will not enter into God's kingdom. And yet I want you to know that you can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. I even once walked dead in sin the same way that you do. I'm no better than you. I am not, I, I do not proclaim or boast in anything in my, in my flesh or in my body or in my ability. But God saved me. He washed me. He sanctified me. He justified me. And he does the same for all of those who come to him and trust in him. You, you, can, you can speak to people about that. I want you to be ready to give an answer. I want you to be able to talk in both wise ways, truthful ways, gracious ways, sharing the gospel with other people, the good news that Jesus Christ saves the worst of sinners, people like Paul, people like us. He saved us, not because of anything in us, but because of his loving kindness, because of his grace and mercy. Also want us to be able to respond with prayer. Nothing that we do uh, can be done in ourselves. Nothing that can be changed. Nothing that, that we want to see big happen happens without the work of God. So turn to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. We should respond with prayer. We should respond with prayer. Paul is talking to the church about how the, the household of God should be ordered. So look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Paul says that we as a church, that we should gather together and pray, that there should be supplications, that is requests, there should be prayers. We should ask for things. There should be intercessions. That is praying for other people or on behalf of other people. And we should be making thanksgiving all along as we see God answering our prayers because we know that God answers our prayers, that he hears us and delivers us out of all of our troubles, that he has given us the spirit and he has promised to hear our prayers. And he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that is for government. He asked that we would pray for government officials. With this in mind, that this is what we are praying first for ourselves, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, Christianity has, in various times and in various cultures and societies, it has been very influential in some cultures and societies and times. 
In fact, in some places and times, it has been privileged. But our prayer, when it comes to the relationship of Christians to the government or the church to the government, we're not praying for privilege. We're not praying that, that the government would give us things that it doesn't give to other people or that it would privilege Christianity above all other religions or that it would, that it would uh, in some way, in some way our nation would be a Christian nation. It can be good when a when when the church and Christians have influence over culture that it has a a a influential quality over culture, but that's sometimes we hope too much and sometimes we hope too little. I think to a very large degree, maybe we've hoped for too much, maybe we've counted on too much, but we're not in a in a place of privilege in society, but what are we praying for? We're praying that we would be able to live a peaceful and quiet life. That we would be able to live lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ. That we are able to live lives that are respectable, that are dignified, that are, that are righteous. That we would be free to live as our conscience dictates, as the word of God commands us. I think that we can hope with a very high degree of of certainty, of confidence that God will answer prayers like this. We may not return to a time where Christianity is privileged. We may not transform the world or transform the culture, but we can live in a a quiet and peaceful life of devotion and righteousness before God. That's what we should be praying for. That's what we should be hoping for. That's what we should be counting on God to answer. I think we should be careful that we not romanticize persecution. Because if persecution comes here the way that it has in other places and other times, it will be devastating. And it can be devastating to the church. But God has told us, pray. Pray for kings and those in high places. That we will be able to live peaceful and quiet lives. That we will be able to live lives of righteousness and dignity. And that's what we pray for ourselves. We also pray for other people. He says there that we should, he desires that, that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because there's one God and one mediator between God and men. The mediator, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom, gave his life as a ransom for all kinds of people. All people out there, we should be praying that God would save them. Don't think of dark times as times where God is not working. You look back, and, and I'm always a big context person. I'm a big, a big history person. If you see what God does, when, 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 you, when you see those times where you, you read about it and you say, hey, I wish I lived through that. I wish I'd been able to see that. Those great times of God doing something remarkable among his people and even in the world, they've not come when it was really calm seas they've come out of times of darkness and difficulty and so when we see that we should lift up our heads and know that God is on his way to deliver his people in some way in some fashion he is going to work for us for our good all right finally uh, we should respond by doing good turn over to first Peter 2 first Peter 2 13 through 17. 
1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter tells, Peter Peter instructs the first century church. He instructs us. He tells us, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to, to, to all government officials, whether high officials, the emperor, or to everybody else who's sent by him. Be subject for the Lord's sake. We're not, we ultimately live, it's like we live in a different country from our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the place where the Lord is king. But for the Lord's sake, we are ambassadors in this country. And so since we are ambassadors in this country, we should be subject to the, the kings, the under kings, the servants of God even now. But then look at what he says. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, if people call Christians bigots, if they call us slanderous names, if we are slandered because of our faith in Jesus Christ, it should never be because we actually did anything wrong. It should always be untrue. In fact, we should make it unbelievable. Like people should be able to say, look at what is portrayed in media and say, hey, this is, this is how Christians are made to look. But, you know, in actuality, I actually know Christians in my neighborhood and at my job. Play on my kids' baseball team. I actually know Christians, and they're not like that at all. Should be able to silence people by our good deeds, by the way that we live, that we should live such good lives that no one is able to accuse Christians of being being harsh or cruel or unloving. Or prejudice. We simply hold to the truth and live to do what's good. And now skip down to First Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, First Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. It says, For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that is when he was insulted, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Whatever injustice we might face, no one has ever faced the level of injustice that Jesus Christ faced. No one was ever more innocent or more righteous and yet more shamefully treated by those who should have praised him, by those who should have loved him, by those who should have welcomed him and received him, and yet they crucified him 
And when they did that, what did Jesus do? Jesus did not return insult for insult. He didn't threaten. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. We're right back where we started in, in 2 Peter. God knows how to save the righteous. God knows how to save the godly out of trials. In Jesus' case, because of his righteousness, because of his innocence, God raised him from the dead. And now we have died with him. We have died to sin. Sin is no longer our ruler. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer is the ultimate power in our lives. But instead, we have died to sin and now we live to righteousness. We now live under the rule of righteousness because Jesus Christ is our king. Jesus Christ is our shepherd and our overseer. We were straying, but he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that makes us to stand firm. That's the hope that makes us to, to suffer injustice if it comes, even to absorb it, even to rejoice that we suffer with Jesus Christ, even to rejoice when we are called uh, vile names because we know that that is the way that God, uh, I'm sorry, that, that people treated the prophets who came before. We know that's how they treated Jesus Christ. We rejoice to suffer with him. However mild it is in comparison to what he did for us. Let us trust in him and know that he will deliver us. He will save us. Even if it is through his coming again and making all things right. Let us walk in wisdom. Let us have answers. Let us continue steadfastly in prayer with thanksgiving. And let us continue to do good as long as we have time. Father, uh, thank you for your goodness toward us and that that you have not left us without a testimony. You have not left us without a word. You have not left us without direction or, or with guidance. But that your word tells us how to live. Tells us how things ought to be. And Lord, we cry out to you. We cry out to you that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But through us, we ask that you would strengthen us that we would stand firm in the truth, that you would enable us to speak with the, the gracious words of Jesus Christ, that we would speak your words with a, in a gracious manner, that we would be truthful uh, in every way, that we would not hold back from speaking the truth, but that in every way, every, every accusation against uh, your people uh, of, uh, of evil or wickedness would be found to be false, and that we would be true to your word, and that we would be your ambassadors and representatives for your sake even as we hope for the return of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.